you're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I try and balance out my use of Queen songs with my use of Ramon songs. Under the outdoor with the steamboats, ancient goblins and wallows, come at the grand line making a sound, the smell of death is on the around. And at night when the cold wind blows, no one cares, nobody knows. I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by the Two True Freaks internet radio site. Hello, my name is Sean Ingle, and my job in this podcast is to cover the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Guy Gardner again is sadly not in the books, but we'll be getting to him later. However, Kyle Rayner is in the book, and he's also in the book with a certain DC character who's not really accustomed to being around Green Lanterns. He's more accustomed to being around Batman and the Outsiders. This time we're looking at a very grisly episode of, or issue episode of Green Lantern, where Dead Man makes a cameo, and it deals with a horrific murder of... Well, it's issue heavy, and we'll get to that when we get to the comic. Plus, we've also got another issue of Green Lantern Corps Quarterly, in which we get a story about a beefcake alien who's a Green Lantern. We get a story about Alan Scott becoming young again. We get a story about Itty, the giant space plankton spore that I don't know. And then we actually get a Nort story that's actually kind of touching in the end. Yes, it's still goofy Nort stuff, but there's actually a bit of sympathy with the character, so it'll be interesting to look at those. Plus, we've also got some letters from me fans, including one uh, kind of from the way back that I think I may have skipped over from Scott Davis. So, we'll be getting to that and everything else right after I play a couple of promos for some excellent podcasts that I love to listen to and hope you would love to listen to as well. And after we get done with that, emails... And then Green Lantern, number 93, in all its creepy goodness. Stay tuned, folks. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine or am I good where I'm at? Oh, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to yours. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it will be used to you at a particular time. And then if you go out of that, it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It it really doesn't work well. So I checked. Right. Uh, I checked my uh, mm-hmm. what's it called? my. Okay. It definitely built built me for the hotel for all three of us. Join back to the bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to, from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death-and-return Superman stories. 
Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them anyway. Yeah, yeah, some of those really did suck, don't they? But from Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast dot com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time. Every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailitude.com. And we are back. And, as I usually do, I get a chance this time out to take a look at the Just One of the Guys email bag and read some of the letters that you guys have written in. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and our first letter is kind of a missed letter that I think either I missed or didn't get to my email box or whatever from Mr. Scott Davis, our good listener from the Great White North. Scott writes in saying, Hi, Sean. I think your show has been great, and I've been able to catch up on some more Green Lantern and Guy Gardner warrior issues. Here are some notes. Green Lantern number 51 through 54. Wow, this is a while back. Ouch. Green Lantern 51. This was a great issue and a refreshing new start to the Green Lantern era. I can only imagine how HAL fans were fuming about this time, and for good reason, because their superhero was turned into a killing machine. But I'm really looking forward to reading the Kyle run. In this issue, his battle with Ohm was a great starter villain, and the reveal of Mongo at the end makes me excited for the next issue. Uh, granted, Mongo being an issue was nice. Ohm, he was just another in the long line of failed Ron Mars villains, you know, attempting to create something for the Green Lantern character. Green Lantern 52, Scott goes back and says, This was another great issue, with Cal learning how to use the ring in the battle with Mongo at the end was excellent. I like how Mars has gone away from the easy villain, Ohm, to one with a, to a hard villain, Monkle, in the next issue. On page 6, Alex violently hits Kyle upside the head over a joke that Kyle made, and it completely turned me off her character. I think this panel was put purposely in here to make her look like Alex was abusive to Kyle, so people wouldn't get too upset over the events that happened a couple issues now. Ooh. The hobo getting violently stabbed on page 16 was, however, a bit uncalled for. Yeah, unless it's going to be bum fights, yeah, you're not going to want to see a hobo. Green Lantern number 53, this was a nice battle issue with Superman coming to the rescue to help Kyle beat up Mongol. It's a bit unclear where Superman takes Mongol, but it looks like some sort of prison with the Slave One sitting in it. I didn't really realize that it was that Boba Fett had something to do with the issue. Neat. I'm not familiar, familiar with Major Force, who is revealed at the end, but I've heard about what happens in the next issue. Then he gets to Green Lantern number 54, so this is how it all went down. When I first read this, I thought of I thought the scene where Major Force chokes Alex to death was actually more brutal than finding your cramp in the fridge. You're right, I think Kyle would have taken Major Force's head off if his ring didn't run out of power at the end. I knew the refrigerator scene was coming, so I wasn't too surprised to see it was revealed, unlike the Militia Maze reveal over the Guy Gardner scenes. Again, I think that's probably because, well, the women in refrigerator thing is a major comic book trope, so there you go. Sally Pascal did a nice job coming on to talk about this issue, too. I'll definitely check out her website. Oh, dude, go do it. She is a fun blogger, and she loves Guy Gardner, and that puts her that puts her at the top of my list. Overall, Mars has done a great job with these issues, Scott continues. He has legitimized Kyle as a strong superhero and made him lose his girlfriend, which will motivate him to serve and protect in the future. And I almost forgot to mention that I really did enjoy Daryl Banks' art throughout all of these. Guy Gardner Warrior, number 22 and 23. 
Guy Gardner Warrior number 22, wow, this caught me by surprise. I was unsure what to think about it after reading it the first time because it was so bizarre and different from what we were from what we were previously reading, X Death of Kilowog. But after rereading it and listening to your podcast, I was able to enjoy it for what it was. A fun, action-packed Indiana Jones type issue. Your comment about the nostril teeth on page one had me cracking up. Uh yeah, Dementor. Weird design. Page 16 came out of nowhere and was absolutely hilarious, with the Nazi dinosaurs breaking through the roof and squashing some dude's head. All Guy can say is, just once, I'd like to finish a beer. Great stuff. After reading this, I couldn't wait for the next issue. Guy Gardner number 23, this was another fun issue. Page 7 is great, with the bad guys being stuffed into a tree. Oh, yeah. That was some good Mitch Bird artwork there, and really showing uh, especially the look on the guy's faces ultimately creepy. Is this panel related to Alex being stuffed in a refrigerator over in the Green Lantern book? Uh, could have been. I'm not really certain, but it it would make sense that it kind of paralleled it. Well, Guy just drank the funny juice, and his line is, with my luck, it'll give me a bad case of the squirts, was hilarious. Page 23 is excellent because it looks like a movie poster with everyone in their stances look, standing around looking macho. It looks like Guy has, yet again, some new body armor or something on him, so we'll see what this means to his future. <sighs> it means crappy, stupid body armor for the foreseeable future of Zero Hour. Ugh, hated that armor. Uh, he finishes up saying, great issue. I'm sorry I got you all excited for Nort being drawn in one of the current issues of Green Lantern New Guardians. I went to my LCS to get the issue and found out it was only a flashback scene. Uh, well... Glad I didn't pick it up then. But on a positive note, it officially means that Nord survived the New 52 and he's still in Green Lantern continuity. Okay, well that's something good to come out of that. He finishes up, thanks, Scott. Well thank you, Scott. I really appreciate you writing in and I'm sorry about the miscommunication. I don't know whether I just deleted that or whether it got to my didn't get to my email box or whatever, but I'm glad that I finally got to email or read your email about your opinions on those issues. Again, thanks for writing in. But our next letter comes from the man, the myth, the legend. Yes, you know him as the most prolific writer hack to pod podcast out there. And the host of Earth Destruction Directive, as well as the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror over at the Two True Freaks website. My good friend and co-host over there, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. And this one doesn't have any subject, but I'm assuming it's about the uh, episode we did a couple of weeks ago about the, uh, what, number 90? About the guy who was an alcoholic, the very heavy-handed issue, issue, yeah, you know. Luke writes in, Sean, I enjoy PSAs. I'm a big fan. But like most Americans who grew up in the 1980s, I prefer my PSAs in the form of overly violent, potentially mean-spirited 30-second TV spots produced by the American Ad Council and airing during commercial breaks of children cartoon shows. So, unless this issue of Green Lantern came with a CD-ROM which let me watch someone smash up their car on the road in an ironic way after having too much to drink, I'll pass. But let's face it, what good is a PSA message if it's not accompanied by some horrific imagery to wander back into your mind right as you're dozing off to sleep and giving one of those full body shivers? Wow, I, I must have missed those PSAs. I'll have to check them out. Luke continues, as a related aside, I love the fact that the AAA of the Carolinas has turned on the British texting and driving PSA, COW, into a 30-second primetime spot. Of course, I find great amusement in the fact that the footage had to, mirror, had to be mirror-flipped so the cars would be driving on the correct side of the road. Krakoom. And he gives a link to the uh, Wikipedia entry about the COW public service announcement, so go check that out. I'll see if I can put that in the show notes. But finally, he wraps up with saying, Donna's gone, and now this this mushy gunk? Jeez. Rough month for a superhero book. Keep up the good work, he says, and here's hoping that Cal get back, gets back to being, you know, a superhero. Luke. Well, thank you, Luke. And Luke actually had a little addendum to the previous email. And he says, The use of music from It's a Mad, 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 Mad World for the Nort story? You sly dog. Yeah, every once in a while, I pick music that uh, actually fits into the story, but uh, sometimes it's a lot harder than it seems. I I envy people who talk about random comic books like the Leylands and uh, Professor Allen who have to come up with different songs to underscore their music for their for their comics they're talking about. That 
it's it's impressive if they can do a decent job about it. And I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you writing in to say that you know you enjoyed that. But with that out of the way, I think I'm going to go ahead and head into this issue heavy episode, issue sode issue of Green Lantern, which is Green Lantern number ninety three. Green Lantern 93 was cover dated December 1997 and released on October 8, 1997. Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics covers this information. The cover price bumped up to $1.95 US and $2.75 Canada. The title this time out was All Hallows Eve. The writer was Ron Mars, pencilers were Tom Grindberg and Daryl Banks, inkers were Carlos Garzon and Terry Austin, colors and separations were by Rob Schwager, letter was Chris Eliopoulos, associate editor was Dana Curtin, and Frightening what? Whatever. Was Kevin Dooley. Our story opens with the grisly murder of Green Lantern and the knife-wielding murderer standing in front of her. Wait, her? Why is it a female Green Lantern? Whatever. We then discover that Kyle Rayner, the actual Green Lantern, is busy being scared by his costume apartment mate, Lee, L.I., she, along with the rest of the people in the neighborhood, is dressed up for Halloween and out reveling in the annual Village Halloween Parade. Kyle marvels at the turnout and ironically mentions to Lee that his Irish Catholic background has never really celebrated Halloween and really isn't into wearing costumes. Aha. Uh-huh. Lee mentions that she hasn't seen her girlfriend, Lee, L-E-E, or their friend Tracy, and Kyle offers to go look for them. Lee informs them that they're dressed like a pirate and Green Lantern, respectively. Cal decides the best way to search for the pair is to actually put on his costume and search from the skies. But as he enters a nearby alleyway, he finds the dead body of Tracy, girl from the beginning of the book, dressed like the Green Lantern. Inspecting the body, Kyle wonders where Lee is, but his search is cut short by the murderer jumping him from behind and slamming his face into a brick wall. With Kyle knocked out, the killer prepares to slit his throat as well, until the killer feels an icy chill stay his hand. Luckily for Kyle, the icy chill wasn't a coincidence, but the hand of Boston Brand, the hero known as Dead Man. The ethereal acrobat leaps into Kyle's body and delivers a left hook to the jaw of the murderer, causing him to run off into the crowd. The green Dead Man gives chase, but accidentally slips on some of the blood from the victim. Awkward. Looking down at the costumed female, Boston contemplates why someone would do this to someone so innocent. But in a moment of clarity, Boston realized that the person he jumped into might not just be wearing a Halloween costume, and he decides to try and will the ring to work for him. Boston creates a construct from his memories of the circus he was in, then realizing that he can use the ring, he takes to the skies to find the devil-masked killer. And he quickly does, witnessing him run right past Jade. Boston lands and Jade asks him if he found out where Lee and Tracy were, but Boston slash Kyle is more interested where the man that pushed past her went. Jade points to the nearby brownstone as she wonders why Kyle is acting so weird, and Boston heads inside to confront the criminal. Reaching the top of the stairs, Boston sees the killer holding another girl at knife point. Uncertain that he could stop him before he slits the girl's throat, Boston tries to start a conversation but the lunatic claims that these lesbian harlots are the reason his wife left him, and now he's going to make them pay. But before he can take another innocent life, the killer's hand is stayed by a ring construct hand willed by Jade. Angered by his mission being thwarted by a woman, the killer jumps out of the window and Boston slash Kyle follows him in hot pursuit. Boston steers the fugitive through the streets back into the alleyway where the murder took place. Then, sensing Kyle's awakening, pops out of his body and allows the Green Lantern to take the killer down. And, just to mess with him, Boston inhabits the body of Tracy and causes the cowardly killer to scale a nearby fire escape, then fall off it onto his own knife. Crisis averted, the girls mourn the death of their friend, but give thanks that they are both still alive and together. While unseen in the coffee shop, Boston Brand muses over the horrors that had to come out over Halloween. It seems over the past few issues, we've got a lot of quote-unquote issue stories. 
from the drinking issue to the recent crossover about racism, and now a tale about homophobia. I mean, I don't mind issue issues or, I guess, important topic issues, so long as they're done in a not-in-your-face manner. Uh, when I covered the alcoholism, that one was really just beating you over the head with the idea that alcoholism or drinking and driving or whatever is bad. We got the racism one with the crossover with Green Arrow, and that was actually really good, because I think Chuck Dixon sort of subdued the idea. This one is kind of in the middle. There is a bit of heavy hand in this, uh, with the idea that this guy is killing these women because he believes that they're lesbians and that's wrong. It's really not that much of an essential part of the book. And the story is a bit darker with an actual dead-in-the-alleyway body showing up at the very beginning of the issue. But, however, with Dead Man being in the book, you kind of expect the book to take that kind of a turn. It's not as heavy-handed as the alcoholism issue, so I think, overall, this is a pretty good win issue. Let's go ahead and start taking a look at the notes. We'll start with the cover. This was the month, and I know Charlie Niemeyer covered this a few months back on Charlie's Geekcast, where he was covering the JLA issues that had Martian Manhunter on the cover of the JLA book. For the uh, time, most of the major comic books, uh, especially the superhero properties of DC for this month, were doing... Uh, face covers, and basically they had art, artwork of uh, close-ups of the people's face, and this is pretty good. I think the only negative thing about it would be the teeth, and again, I I don't get Austin's fascination with it, but usually when he draws teeth, he separates them, but here there's no separation between the teeth, so it just like looks like Kyle's wearing maybe one of those mouth guards that's white. It's kind of weird. However, there is some really nice coloring as he's holding the uh, his fist up to his face with the ring on it, and there's some nice coloring with the uh, energy coming off the ring. And the coloring on the mask is really good, too. Uh, every once in a while in this era when they started the computer-type coloring, it could get a bit wonky, but I think it looks really good here. It gives the mask a nice metallic sheen, so I really enjoy that. But then moving into the book, this is perhaps the darkest opening splash I have seen in this book. And it even includes some of the stuff that they did with uh, in issue 54 with the death of Alex. There's a dead body in the background. There's a guy holding a bloody knife. There's a pool of blood under the woman. There's an obvious stab wound to her abdomen. It's, it's really all pretty gruesome. But again, I think the fact that Dead Man is guesting in this book kind of allows them to get away with a bit more of the sort of darker, macabre feel. Then on the next page, we get the setup for the sort of village Halloween parade, which is, initially you think it's just a general Halloween party with all the people coming out, but you kind of get later in the issue that it is a very village-oriented Halloween parade, and we'll get to that in a second. But there are some really nice costumes here. There's a guy dressed up as Frankenstein, there's uh, someone dressed up as uh, Dracula, uh, could be, you know, cosplaying as Doctor Strange. Maybe it's Doctor Strange dressed up as Dracula, you never know. But then on the next page, on page three, there's uh, someone as the uh, 66 Batman, except uh, he's really let himself go, has a big old gut there. And there's also Superman and Supergirl. Of course, uh, they seem to be a, a bit affectionate, and uh, I think uh, Superman is trying to date Supergirl, which is probably in continuity and also very creepy as well. But moving on to page four, we get more into the idea that this is a village and a sort of maybe alternative type parade because one of the uh, people, in fact, on the third panel here is a, is a man. It's definitely a man because you can see the tufts of hair sticking out of his chest in drag. In fact, uh, he's got a, I guess he's got one of those silicone implant bra things that uh, would Definitely, well, it, it gives him an idea of be, having boobs. So we have this kind of thing, surprisingly enough, in Oklahoma City as well. We have a uh, area called the Paseo District in Oklahoma City. And every time around Halloween, we'll get people, in fact, Wayne Coyne, the lead singer of the Flaming Lips, often hosts a Halloween parade that has this sort of alternative thing. And they've also had, uh, I think, zombie run type parades as well. So 
yeah, it's kind of odd. Uh, just commenting here in Oklahoma City that we'd have this kind of stuff, but it's fun nonetheless, and it's not really put in the book to be controversial or any controversial or anything. It's predominantly there to show that a lot of the people around this neighborhood have alternative lifestyles, and we obviously get that with Lee and her girlfriend Lee, which is annoying to say because uh, when you're reading it, it's fine. When you're talking about it, it's difficult. Plus, on the same page in panel seven, we get uh, amidst the crowd, it's interspersed in here that the killer is actually there. We see the guy in the uh, red Satan mask here in one of these panels. So it's nice that he's subtly put into the book without necessarily calling attention to it. Moving on past Kyle discovering the body and everything, I'm moving on to page eight, panel two, where Boston notices that Kyle doesn't have the fist for fighting as he punches the guy in the devil mask in the face. And the guy runs off. This is kind of a bone of contention for me because just a couple of issues back, in fact, the issue where Jade showed up in the shower, at the beginning of that, Kyle was in the middle of the Asian district of uh, New York picking up, uh, what was it, Mushu pork or whatever he was for uh, Donna. And he basically fended off a gang of horrible Asian stereotypes without really ringing up any constructs in the beginning. So it bugs me that they can use Kyle's fighting abilities, actual hand-to-hand -hand combat abilities, that those abilities can ebb and flow depending upon whether the plot needs it or not. I wish they'd pick whether Kyle can actually fight or not and stick with it. Page 11, panel 1, after Boston realizes that he might have inhabited the actual body of an actual Green Lantern, his first ring construct is a really cool... Um, female ring announcer on the back of an elephant. So it brings readers who don't know that much about Deadman back to the idea that he initially was a circus performer. So it, it, it's a nice little uh, piece of continuity in there. Then moving on to page 12, panel 4, there's a nice little Easter egg here on this panel as Kyle or Boston and Kyle's body is flying over the, the parade going after the people. There's an obvious reference to characters in the Watchmen here. In the background, you've got Ozymandias or Adrian Veach or whatever he's called in his sort of, well, his Ozymandias suit. Then you've got an, an obvious Rorschach here with the hat and the face with the mask and everything. And then a uh, Dr. Manhattan. Uh, it doesn't look like he's blue. The coloring makes him look like he's kind of green, but he they're obviously going for that. And this being a... Uh, village uh halloween parade i wouldn't be too surprised if he was actually going the full watchman uh dr manhattan look you know what i'm saying yeah page 14 panels one and two i like that kyle's ring constructs while he's being inhabited by boston aren't the typical things that Kyle would be thinking of. They definitely have a sensibility that Boston would have, as when he opens the door with a, with his hand, with a ring construct hand to push it open, the hand looks kind of spectral and skeleton-like, and when he's uh, ringing up a thing to show light, or a flashlight, basically, it's a giant skull face with the beams of light coming out of the eyes. It's, it's just... It shows that whoever is using the ring uses their own imagination to make it, and it's it's nice to see that we get a variety of constructs depending upon who's using the ring. I, I like that in this book. And then moving to page 16, panel 2, we finally get to the meat of the issue and the motivation behind the murder, and the killer is holding these two people, is holding this girl hostage, Lee, I guess, L-E-E, -E, and it killed Terry, because his wife left him, because supposedly he left him, or she left him for another woman. So he's got a grudge against lesbians. It's not, like I said at the beginning, it's not heavy-handed. It's not, you know, lesbians are great, and this guy's a jerk for doing it. It's just brought up within the story, and it is very misplaced anger, this guy is looking for any kind of reason, and I think definitely his personality, and probably you might even suspect he might have been abusive, could have pushed his wife away, and 
I don't know if it... And here's where I'm going to get a bit controversial. I don't know whether his anger and his negativity towards his wife caused her to be a lesbian or whether or not she was actually had just not come out and finally decided that, well, because I tried being with this person and it's been miserable, now I can really embrace the fact that I am. It's one of those touchy things that is always difficult to deal with homosexuality. A lot of people believe that it's genetic, which I will say more it's biological. I think there is a biological element to it. But unfortunately, especially with women, there seems to be a more likelihood for women to accept being comfortable with being sexually attracted to other women rather than is for men. So I think biologically it's more it's more biologically tuned for men to be homosexual where women the biological urge isn't that isn't necessarily the most important thing sometimes it can be emotional sometimes women just have a more empathy for other women and they can relate to them and they can relate to them in an emotional way more than men can relate to another man in an emotional way all I'm saying is homosexuality is a difficult subject to deal with, and I'm not the kind of person who's going to have the answers for it. You know, you can listen to other people about that. But moving along from the controversy that I probably brought up in this issue, I'm going to move on to page 17, and I do find it a delicious coincidence that the person who is putting an end to this guy's killing spree is a woman. Jade comes in and Ring constructs up a hand to stop him from stabbing the girl. Awesome. But then we move back into the horror aspect of the book, and this is perhaps the creepiest part of it. On page 20, panel 1, Boston inhabits the body of the dead girl, Tracy, bringing her back to life to torment this guy. That is effectively creepy, and... I don't know if Boston can actually do this. Unfortunately, my knowledge of Dead Man is kind of limited, other than a few appearances in various comic books, and uh, I think I read some of it, some of his stuff in the uh, Blackest Night type stuff. But I'm not that associated with him. Can he jump into dead corpses and reanimate them? I thought it was he had to be in the body of someone who was living. Uh, I don't know, but it's it's an effectively creepy way of making this guy feel uncomfortable and makes me feel uncomfortable too. Of course, the other thing that makes me feel uncomfortable is on the same page, panel three, when they uh, take the uh, devil mask off of him, the guy looks a lot like Nicolas Cage. He's got that sort of balding look and the face and the nose looks a lot like Nicolas Cage, so... Ugh, creepy Nicolas Cage murdering people. Yeah, there you go. But that wraps up my notes for the issue. Let's take a quick look at some of the ads in here. Uh, the front inside cover is an ad for uh, Sub-Zero, I'm sorry, Mortal Kombat Mythology Sub-Zero. And it's got a, uh, like an insane clown posse member. I guess that's supposed to be Sub-Zero on the front. Uh, yeah. I love the Mortal Kombat games. Uh, I played a lot of them on my uh, Sega Genesis, but I think this game is not very highly regarded, so probably not the best game out there. A few more pages in, we get the elephant dunking the guy in a barrel for uh, Mellow Yellow. I think we did that before. We've also got the uh, Mr. Freeze pewter action figure. I know we've done that one as well. We've got a, another ad for uh, Coca-Cola with the faux Jack Davis uh, very 90s artwork and this time rather than kids skating or playing baseball or whatever it's holy cow it's a it's a character that would make Guy Gardner Warrior look diminutive as a it's a football player with a bunch of guys tackling and he's carrying the ball he's all roided up and he's drinking a Coca-Cola and it's uh it is a very 90s piece of artwork here. The Watch This Space ad has some information about uh, Kingdom Come in it, uh, a softball game or a softball team uh, 
involving Will Ortiz and Greg Ross and uh, Doug Cohen. It's got uh, stuff about, what, uh, a new Creeper series. Uh, They talk about a little bit, I said about Kingdom Come. And it's got a weird sort of picture of Batman, a very stylized one. And he's eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the uh, thought balloon over Batman says, I miss Alfred's PB&J. So obviously the uh, Dark Knight enjoys himself some, uh, some peanut butter and jelly. I wonder if Batman is a crunchy or creamy lover. I don't know. The subscription ad is the 90s JLA with the all 90s characters, including uh, Electric Blue Superman. I'm pretty certain we did that. The next page is, though, an advertisement for the three-issue miniseries uh, JLA Paradise Lost, which deals with the character of Zariel, the uh, kind of a stand-in for Hawkman, I guess, because they really weren't willing to use Hawkman in the JLA. And I guess he's, if I recall, he's an angel. Or a fallen angel. It was Grant Morrison, just chalk it up to that. The next ad's kind of a fun one. It's a runaway bestseller over 11 million copies in print in the 30th century. So, they know about this. It's the life story of the Flash, the tragic true tale of the fastest man alive, written, supposedly, by Iris West Allen. And it's as told to Mark Wade and Brian Augustine, and illustrated by Gil Kane and Tom Palmer. Nice. It's a hardcover graphic novel coming in October. I have not seen this before, but with that kind of pedigree behind it, Mark Wade, Brian Augustine, Gil Kane, and Tom Palmer, it sounds like it'd be an interesting read. I wonder if I can find this on eBay. I may have to check it out, see what it goes for. Hold on. Yeah, a quick check of eBay says they're pretty plentiful, and they usually run from anywhere from 12 to 19 and some of them have them up in the $35 age, and that's for the actual hardback. So, that's kind of cool. The next page is an ad for Superman's Secret Files Origins. It's a 64-page special uh, detailing the uh, brand-new Electric Blue Superman. And it's got uh, art and stories by Bogdanov, Breeding, Grummet, Eminem, Janky, Jurgens, Carl Kiesel, uh, Jose Marzan Jr., Jerry Ordway, Dennis Rodier, Rubenstein, Ryan, uh, Louis Simonson, and Stern. So... They gathered up everyone to tell this uh, story about the Superman who's going to be around forever. Yes, the electric, electric blue Superman is here to stay, folks. Then the back inside cover is an advertisement for Twix, the uh, two chocolate and caramel candy bar. And the ad goes, he who unwraps the Twix gets both bars. It's not just safe, it's the law. And I think uh, Judge Dredd was enforcing this because Judge Dredd loves himself some Twix. The back inside or the back outside cover, however, is for another sugary snack, and it's got some more of that goofy '90s artwork for Captain Crunch Crunch Berries bars, which is not only crunchy but it's also gooey, with the uh, gooey good taste of real marshmallow. Crunch berries and marshmallow, yeah, uh, diabetes just waiting to happen there. But that finishes up the book. I'm going to go take a break, get a quick drink, and as soon as I get back, we're going to take our look at Green Lantern Corps Quarterly, number five. Looking forward to it. Maybe not. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at Two True Freaks. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. Hey 
Vietnam War, a conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed, while many did not come back at all. This is their story. Marvel Comics presents The Nom. Join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series, The Nom. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. Dot com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. And we're back. So let's go ahead and dive on in. To Green Lantern Corps Quarterly Number 5. It was cover dated summer 1993 and released on April 20th, 1993. The cover price was 250 US, 325 Canada, and a pound in the UK. The opening title of the book was The Book of Rebirth, so Jeff Johns wasn't the first one to come up with Rebirth. Writer was Gerard Jones, penciler was Scott Collins, inker was Bob Smith, letterer was Albert Guzman, colorist was Anthony Tolan, associate editor was Eddie Braganza, and editor was Kevin Dooley. Our story opens with the four kids that Green Lantern John Stewart has given power rings to investigating a strange cocoon that they found on the Mosaic world. The quartet use the rings to try and look inside the cocoon, but before they can discover what it holds, a shimmering silver humanoid butterfly bursts forth from the chrysalis. It just so happens that this ample Thorox bud lady is former Green Lantern Charisma, who started her metamorphosis at the end of the Green Lantern Corps run. Hoping to catch up on all that has happened during her time of changing, Chrisma and the Young Lanterns head to, wait for it, the Book of Oa, to begin this issue's series of stories. And I guess now this explains why that Guy Gardner issue, that awful Guy Gardner worry issue number 35, had Guy not recognizing who Chrisma was, because she's essentially morphed into a amply chested butterfly lady, so... Whatever, I guess. Uh, it's a Green Lantern core tale. Just go with it. Uh, the artwork is good. Scott Collins is a decent artist, but he's not as clean an artist as uh, M.D. Bright. His art looks a bit scratchy. It's not bad, but it just doesn't have the refinement that Bright's art did. I would have preferred that. I might as well, while I'm talking about it, as well go to the cover, which has on the uh, side where they usually had the panel for the Alan Scott storyline and the uh, Nort storyline, the title of Rebirth. So, yeah, Jeff Johns, again, you weren't the first one to use this. But it's got a picture of... God, uh, like... He's a very 90s, long-haired, and this is a mullet. Yes, because it's short in the front and long in the back. Really muscly guy, just sort of flexing and getting poked by a bunch of yellow pointy things. I'm certain there's some really creepy subtext in there, but I really don't want to delve too far into it. Other than having to delve into it in the first story in the book, which is about this character, and it's entitled Adam This Time. And it was written by Elliot S. Magan, penciled by Francesco, Okay. Inked by Bob Dvorak, lettered by Albert Guzman, and colored by Steve Matson. I'm assuming editor and associate editor are duly in Braganza. On the planet of Genericon 4, beefy purple alien Adam tends to his horticulture, while being all hot and stuff. Unfortunately, his flexing for the flora will have to wait as his Green Lantern ring alerts him to a nearby spacecraft that is in danger. Adam tries to stop the ship from spinning off into the planet's atmosphere, 
but the diaper-wearing Cryptkeeper aliens on board don't want the help and blast the Geo with their plasma cannons. Despite the aliens being total dicks to him, Adam safely lands the ship and tries to help the survivors, but only gets his throat slashed at by their yellow bugle-like fingernails. Letting, or maybe causing, the last survivor to tie, Adam does the decent thing, and he buries them in his garden, as a sort of creepy space compost. Ugh. Much like Hercules, Adam is so tired he can barely keep his eyes open, so he conks out by the freshly tilled decomposing aliens. Of course, this leads to a Guardian Field expositional dream sequence that tells us that Adam is one in the line of a single consciousness that dies and is reborn, retaining the former life's memories and experiences. Okay. Adam wakes up and is all jonesed about the fact that he's going to die and be reborn as his own son. Hmm. But before he jumps into a volcano to restart his life, he decides to take the alien cargo from the ship to its destination. But upon arriving there, Adam is attacked by a boatload of yellow pointy things, who really don't want the cargo. Adam tries to alleviate the hostility by dispensing the cargo to the yellow pointy things, but they're not into it and they start poking him, eventually enveloping him and leaving him for dead. Luckily, the ring drug him back to Genericon 4 and tossed him and the lantern into the volcano, so that his life may begin anew. Okay, <laughs> seriously. WTF. <laughs> I was completely weirded out by this story. I I know that Elliot S. Magan is known for writing acclaimed Superman stories in the Bronze Age, but if this is an example of some of his writing, I don't know if I'd really be into it. I get the whole uh, Phoenix as, you know, not the Marvel character, but the mythological character, the Phoenix aspect of the character, as well as the Garden of Eden aspect, uh, you know, obviously he's tending a garden, but but the story is just all kinds of bizarre. Plus, uh, the way that Francesco draws Adam, in every pose it looks like he's trying to win Mr. Universe or something. Every image of him looks like he's trying to flex or pose or something. It's just... Mm -hmm. But I've got a few, like, page-by-page page notes on the story. I'll go ahead and start with that. On page 4, panel 2, along with Fabio, Adam, purple-skinned alien posing and being all beefy and stuff, he does have a little neat design that makes him a bit more alien. And I think we saw this in the uh, Green Lantern Flash team-up of Faster Friends. He's got essentially an extra thumb on the end of his finger, uh, or an extra finger after his pinky finger. It kind of comes around. I don't know whether it's specifically a thumb, but it looks like it is, and it's it's just one of those things to make him look a little bit more alien and not just Fabio. Oh, and did I mention that he's also wearing a headband? Yeah, he's, he's just so beefy. Then on page 6, panel 3, we get the aliens who are... I don't know what the heck are wrong with them. They're very... You know, xenophobic. They don't trust this Green Lantern, and Adam is essentially trying to help them from crashing into the planet. But the look of the aliens is just all kind of creepy. They kind of have a very bug-looking skull. Um, also, think of Ultron with that sort of weird mouth-type thing, and kind of antennas. But they've also got very skinny arms and kind of a distended belly, and it looks like they're wearing silver metal diapers. Ugh, they're just uh, a weird, weird design. Then moving on to page 10, panel 1. Oh, it's really sweet. The The Green Lantern is giving the dead aliens a funeral. That's that's really nice of him. Oh, oh no, wait. I'm sorry. He's he's burying them and using their bodies as compost. Ah, <laughs> uh, creepy. Then on page 14, panel 4, we get the enemy to all Green Lanterns, yellow pointy things. Yeah, it's not at all original, but yeah, it's here. And it's never really determined whether these yellow pointy things are craft of some sort of minuscule aliens, or whether they're sentient beings, or what. It's just, it's all just bizarre weirdness, and... 
I guess it's typical for Green Lantern Corps stories, but uh, not the biggest fan of it. However, I do think it's rather clever on uh, page 16, panel 4. In order to avoid the yellow pointy things, Adam picks up some pieces of uh, asteroid debris that are surrounding him and uses that to form a sort of cocoon around him to defend him from the yellow pointy thing. So, you know, that's a bit of cleverness. It's rather than, you know, trying to wield them off with your ring constructs and obviously not going to work. It's nice that he uses his surroundings to try and save himself, but... That's all I have on this story. Let's go ahead and move on to the next one, the Alan Scott story. It was entitled Dreaming, and it was written by Ron Mars, penciled by Jim Ballant, inked by Andrew Peepoy, colored by Matt Webb, lettered by Bob Naha, with Green Lantern being created by Bill Finger and Martin O'Dell. In a scene that better displays Jim Ballant's talents for drawing the female anatomy, we see a young Green Lantern Alan Scott and a young Harlequin engaging in some hopefully pre-coital fighting McFightenstein. Copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved. Of course, all of this was a dream, which Alan, alone in a hotel in Gotham, awakens from. Alan heads to the bathroom to collect his thoughts, or pee, one or the other, but after taking a look in the mirror, he finds that the dream was actually true, as he's suddenly de-aged a good 40-some years. Add to that that his Green Lantern costume has changed, and it's enough to make Alan head out into the night sky to try and discover what has happened. His mission is quickly interrupted by a freezing blast from Green Lantern's long-thought-dead foe, Icicle. Alan quickly dispatches the Captain Cold wannabe, only to be attacked by Solomon Grunty, also back from the dead and still on the lookout for some pants. Alan begins to think this might all be a dream, but the beatdown that Grundy is giving him doesn't feel like a dream. In his anger, Alan unleashes a blast against Grundy, burning him to the ground. Alan questions who's doing this to him, and the answer comes from Rocker Lita Ford. Wait, no, I'm sorry. It's Harlequin, who's using her illusionary powers to mess with the Green Lantern. Alan confronts the hair metal groupie, saying that his wife is the Harlequin, and although she's totally hot and bangable, Alan wants to remain faithful to Molly. Harlequin says that they were meant to be together, and as she fades away into Papa Spoke, Alan Scott contemplates what he will do with his newfound youth, as he strikes a Batman pose on a building ledge. Now, this story is kind of upsetting. And despite the fact that they got Ron Mars to write it, I would have rather had Roger Stern around because I think Stern was trying to promote the character of Alan Scott as an elder statesman of the DC Universe. But for whatever reason, they decided to de-age him and turn him into a youthful, hip, trendy, blonde-haired, super-ab guy. And it just didn't work for me. I, although I can see where Jim Ballant got the reputation for drawing William women with ridiculous anatomies. I mean, the females aren't as out of proportion as some creators would draw them, but the boobs and butts are definitely accentuated in the drawings. But uh, Ballant, Ballant covers for that with some very detailed line work on the uh, backgrounds. In fact, uh, if you look at some of the artwork in the buildings on there, there's a lot of detail put into the brickwork and all that. So I think Ballant's a very talented artist. He just likes to focus on the female anatomy. Jim Boobs and Butts at Ballant, I think, is a Michael Bailey uh, uh, coined phrase. And it's wholly appropriate here. And like I said, it's a shame that Stern wasn't writing these because I really got I really got to enjoy the tales of the Elder Alan Scott. Why they decided he needed to be a youthful guy and brooding, who knows? But there you go. I hope, however, no one ever decides to take the character of Alan Scott and make make him youthful and brooding ever again because that would probably be awful. The next story is a whatever happened to story, and this one is about Eddie. Aptly titled, Whatever Happened to Eddie. The writer was Steve Batson, the penciler was Art Nichols, inker was Al Vey, letterer Gaspar Saladino, and Steve Batson also did the coloring. The story opens with a splash of recap from the Green Lantern Green Arrow and Flash comics that introduced the freaky spore being known as Eddie. Having blasted off into space with the vivarium containing his sibling plant thingies, Itty suddenly gets a cosmic distress signal from another being like him. As Itty warps away to the source of the transmission, we see another freaky spore alien. This time with boobs, 
being attacked by bug-eyed scroll wannabes who have some sort of jihad against the purple space plant. It seems that this was the alien who sent out the distress call, and Itty arrives at the fracas to try and stop the slaughter. Itty and the purple plant chick make the uh, broccoli with two packs, which causes the jihad aliens to get even more PO'd, thus leading to the completely forgettable issue 43 of Green Lantern. Uh, yeah, I don't care about Itty. I didn't like the story in Green Lantern 43, so I think the less I say about this story, the better. I will admit that the art, uh, the art is nice and trippy, but that's to be expected in a story about a sentient space spore plant being whatever. Let's just move on and hope the next one is a little better. The final tale in the book involves Nort and is entitled Every Dog Has His Day, and it was written again by Michael Yeary, penciled by Joe James, inked by Barb Kahlberg, lettered by Albert Guzman, and colored by Anthony Tolman. Nort and Sax Girl land at her mother's home in the sleepy hamlet of Cornucopia in hopes of making a surprise visit to her estranged mother. However, upon opening the door, Sax Girl finds that she's greeted by her mother, who is now acting like a dog, while her dog Sparky is acting a lot like Nort. Sax Girl passes out from the shock of seeing the transformation of mother and pet, and Sparky distracts Nort with reruns of Sassy while he secretly contacts. The leader. Sax Girl awakens and overhears Sparky's conversation, which leads her to tell Nort about what is going on. Unfortunately, she is confronted by Sparky, who holds her captive at gunpoint. Sax Girl grabs a picture from the wall and smashes it into Sparky's face, making a daring escape. All the while, Nort is wondering what the heck is going on, as this episode of Sassy is all kinds of messed up. Realizing that someone has messed with his favorite TV show, Nort springs into action only to be confronted by Sparky with the real news. You see, it's more than just TV reruns that have been altered. It's the intelligence between dogs and humans in Cornucopia. And when Sparky got hit on the head by the picture of Sax Girl and him as a puppy, he knew things had to be made right. Back in the town, Sax Girl is witness to all the dogs and people having their personality swapped. But before she can meet up with Nort in an attempt to change it, she's nabbed by the local quote-unquote human catcher and brought before... The Leader! Another bipedal canine cosplaying as Galactus. The Leader! Threatens to convert Sax Girl as well, but Nort steps in and gets blasted by the conversion ray himself, turning him into Yahoo Sirius. Anyone get that reference? Probably not. Seeing the obvious attraction between Sax Girl and human Nort, the Leader offers to allow him to stay human if he becomes his right hand man but Sax Girl convinces him to change all of the citizens of the town back to normal, after one final kiss. Nort blows up the machine, reverting dogs and humans to their normal roles, and wraps up the leader for transport back to prison on Newt. Crisis averted, the story ends with Sax Girl saying that she wants to stay here with her mother, and that Nort needs to be out there in the universe helping others. And in the final shot, we see a tearful Nort flying back into space. Alone. Again, like I said before, Yuri brings a lot of sort of Looney Tunes feel to the story, which I believe he wrote some of the Looney Tunes comics for DC at, at the time. But at the end of it, it takes a really kind of sentimental end. Also, uh, I did a little research, and Michael Yuri is actually the founder and editor of Back Issue magazine. So I've heard a lot of people rave about Back Issue, so uh, I think that's kind of cool that he was actually a writer for DC and did a few stories in this. However, the art is still very cartoony. It's it's passable, but again, I would have preferred Staten to do this, but Joe James does all right, and it works for all the little sight gags that they threw in. I've got a few notes on this. Uh, starting with page 42, panel 5, we find out that Sax Girl's actual name is Rose. Hmm. A quirky girl named Rose, who is a companion to a hero who can be easily distracted and travels around in space, meeting goofy-looking aliens. Hmm, that sounds familiar. I wonder where I've heard of something like that before. Uh, I have no idea who that could be. Page 45, panel 3, there's a reference to a David Letterman analog on TV who does stupid human tricks. And I think at the time, 
David Letterman had moved to CBS. Yeah, I'm thinking about this time he had already been on CBS. So he has been doing stupid pet tricks for a long time, and I think he might have already introduced the whole idea of stupid human tricks. So this may not be an original thing. Page 48, panel 1. Uh, there's some really fun sight gags on this panel. There's uh, a bunch of the people in the town. Uh, there's one human who's running on sort of all fours with a stake in his mouth, running away from a butcher who has a really big cleaver chasing after him, and a blind dog with a seeing-eye human. So uh, just sort of funny little sight gags on here, and James makes it kind of amusing. Page 49, panel 1. The leader is actually one of Nort's old teachers on the planet Newt, and his costume is really a big riff on the whole Galactus thing. In fact, it even has the uh, circle emblem on his chest with, uh, instead of the G for Galactus, it's got the L for leader. The helmet doesn't have the little pointy things on the side pointing up, they're pointing down, but yeah, it's obviously a Galactus homage or ripoff or whatever you would call it. Then on page 51, as Dort is transformed into a human, he's he's not very sexy at all. I, I, I referenced Yahoo Sirius because of the hair, but I guess maybe he could look a little bit like David Tennant. So maybe that's why Rose is into him. Yeah, that's probably it. Then on page 52, panel 5, there's a nice little gag here where the uh, humans and dogs have been transformed back, and uh, one of the people looks down at his dog and goes... Uh, Mr. Peabody, is that you? So, yeah, there's a Sherman and Peabody reference here. Oh, it says, gee, what happened, Mr. Peabody? I'm sorry. So, yeah. Yeah, Sherman and Peabody reference. Uh, always fun. But then on page 53, we get Sack's girl leaving the book and Nort taking uh, the leader back into space to be incarcerated on Newt. And the story ends on kind of a tragic note. And the artwork... Although cartoony and goofy looking actually conveys the feeling because as Nord is walking away in the panel before the last one, he's got this sort of grin on his face that he's actually trying to to smile about leaving, that he's fine with it. But as he's flying off, you see a tear coming out of his eye. And as much as you think that you really wouldn't care or feel emotion for a character like Nord, you, I kind of did. So... I guess testament to the artwork here, even though it is cartoony and goofy. But of course, we get the wrap-up, and the book ends with Chrisma and the GL Bunch learning the lesson for the book, which I guess is about rebirth or something. Again, message issues. Could care less. But that does it for this episode. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope you guys come back next time out, because we're going to be doing another crossover. Next week, we're going to be skipping coverage of the Green Lantern Corps quarterly book, and we're going to be covering an issue of Superboy. In fact, Green Lantern and Superboy are going to be teaming up in a two-part story called Idol Worship, starting in Green Lantern number 94 and Superboy number 47. And because I know uh, pretty much close to nothing about Superboy from this era, I've decided to invite on a podcaster who might know a little bit about Superboy. He's a member of the Superman Podcast Network. Who is it? Well, you'll just have to stay tuned next week to find out. But yeah, come back next week for an issue of Green Lantern, an issue of Superboy, and a very special guest host. Until then, I hope you guys have a great weekend, and join us next time on another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Bye, everyone. See you next time. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. 
The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, The New Mule 2, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Gods, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show is from the Ramones, and it's the song Pet Cemetery. This song's off the album Brain Drain, which you could get in a myriad number of places, but if you'd like to get the album, I think the best way to go get it would be to go to Amazon.com. Amazon.com is your one-stop shop for all things electronic, music, games, anything you want to do. So if you enjoy the Ramones, like I do, I suggest you go to Amazon.com and download the song. And the best way to get to Amazon.com is by using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. When you go to the page at 2TrueFreaks.com, clicking on the banner up the left hand, upper left-hand corner will take you to Amazon, where you can buy the Ramones song, download the MP3, or buy the CD. Plus, there are myriad other things that you can buy on Amazon.com. It's almost unlimited. And every time you make a purchase at Amazon.com by using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com, a small amount of your purchase price goes back to help the website. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really, really helps us out. So anytime you plan on doing any shopping, as Christmas is coming up, make sure you do that shopping through the Amazon link at 2TrueFreaks.com.